Welcome to the final installment of Big Screen Batman through Bureau 42, at least until they produce more Batman films. Of course, the podcast will continue in January with Silver Screen Superheroes. This month we're looking at Dark Knight Rises, the last in the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, originally released on July 20th, 2012. It currently stands as film number 55 in the Internet Movie Database Top 250 Film Rankings. Now, as I said, this is part three in the trilogy, and it's going in a little bit different direction than they had originally intended. When The Dark Knight was written, they had ideas for a third film, but those ideas depended on Heath Ledger returning as the Joker, which unfortunately was not possible for obvious reasons. Christopher and Jonathan Nolan were able to come up with other story ideas to continue the series without Heath Ledger. In the interim between Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, they'd also done the Inception films. Christopher Nolan did some story and production work on Man of Steel. His latest work is Interstellar. While Jonathan Nolan has contributed his writing to Person of Interest, which I've heard people refer to as Hobo Batman, as well as an upcoming Westworld TV series. David S. Goyer also returns with story and screenplay credit in Man of Steel, as well as story credit in this one. He's also made contributions to Da Vinci's Demons, Constantine the TV series, and the upcoming Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. For the rest of the crew, we also see Hans Zimmer return. He worked on several projects in between Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, including films in the Transformers franchise, Despicable Me, Sherlock Holmes, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, and following Dark Knight Rises, he's done Hansel and Gretel, Through the Wormhole, Divergent, more Transformers, and most recently, Interstellar. James Newton Howard, who collaborated with Hans Zimmer on previous films, chose not to return after seeing the results of Nolan and Zimmer collaborating on Inception. Wally Pfister returns as the director of photography or the cinematographer, having worked on Inception, Moneyball, Marlon, Me, and My Valentine in between. As of this point, he has no subsequent credits, at least in this category, on the Internet Movie Database. Lee Smith also returns as editor. In the interim between the Batman films, he was editor on Inception, The Way Back, and X-Men First Class. He has also worked on Elysium, Ender's Game, Interstellar, and some upcoming projects. Nathan Crowley is back as production designer, having worked on Public Enemies and John Carter in the interim, and having subsequently worked on Interstellar and the upcoming Westworld. And another notable returning talent was Kevin Cavanaugh, who shifted from art director on Dark Knight to production designer on this film. And he's also worked on Whippet, Going the Distance, November Man, and Nightcrawler. We also see several returning members of the cast. That includes Christian Bale, returning as Bruce Wayne and Batman. Now, between these films, he had worked on Terminator Salvation, Public Enemies, The Fighter, and Flowers of War. Since Dark Knight Rises, he's done Out of the Furnace, American Hustle, Exodus, Gods, and Kings, and several other unreleased projects. Gary Oldman returned as Jim Gordon. In the interim, he did voices in the Legend of Spyro, Dawn of the Dragon video game as Ignitus, in the Call of Duty games as Victor Reznov, in the movie Planet 51, and in the movie Kung Fu Panda 2. He's also appeared on screen in The Unborn, Do Not Go See the Perfect Sleep, Rainfall, A Christmas Carol, Book of Eli, Red Riding Hood, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and Lawless. And following Dark Knight Rises, he's done Guns, Girls, and Gambling, David Bowie The Next Day, Paranoia, Robocop, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and several more unreleased projects. Morgan Freeman also returns. In the interim, he worked on Thickest Thieves, Maiden Heist, Invictus, Red, Conan the Barbarian, Dolphin Tale, and Magic of Bell Island. His subsequent projects include Olympus Has Fallen, Oblivion, Now You See Me, Last Vegas, The Lego Movie, 
Transcendence, Wish Wizard, Lucy, Ruth and Alex, Dolphin Tale 2, Last Nights, London Has Fallen, and has more in production. Michael Caine returns as Alfred Pennyworth. In the interim, he worked on Is Anybody There, Harry Brown, Inception, Nomeo and Juliet, Cars 2, Journey to the Mysterious Island, and subsequently worked on Now You See Me, Last Love, Stonehurst Asylum, Interstellar, Lego Batman 3 The Video Game, and more projects in production. Nestor Carbonell returned as the mayor. In the interim, he did Lost the Story of Oceanic 6, Special Agent Oso, The Lost TV Series, Psych, Penguins of Madagascar, Noah, Ringer, For Greater Glory, The True Story of Krista Dada, and subsequently worked on Dead Drop, Person of Interest, Good Wife, Bates Motel, Wilfred, and State of Affairs, as well as other projects in production. Liam Neeson even returns very briefly for what appears to be a hallucination. In the interim, he'd worked on Breakfast on Pluto, several of the Chronicles of Narnia movies, Seraphim Falls, Taken, Ponyo, The Other Man, Fallout 3, Five Minutes of Heaven, Afterlife, Clash of the Titans, A-Team, Cubed, The Big C, The Next Three Days, Unknown, Life's Too Short, The Grey, Wrath of the Titans, and Battleship. And following this, he did Taken 2, Kumba, Third Person, Anchorman 2, The Nutjob, Family Guy, Nonstop, Lego Movie, Star Wars Clone Wars, and A Million Ways to Die in the West, as well, again, as some upcoming projects. Now, we also introduced several new cast members. This includes Tom Hardy as Bane. Now, I didn't recognize him even though I'd seen him in other projects. He'd been in Band of Brothers, Black Hawk Down, Layer Cake, Sweeney Todd the TV Movie, Marie Antoinette, Flood, The Killing Gene, Inheritance, Sucker Punch, Thickest Thieves, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, and Warrior. Now, in Star Trek Nemesis, he plays the clone of Patrick Stewart, or more properly, Jean-Luc Picard. With the makeup and the amount of bodybuilding he's done in between, I never would have put that together. Subsequently, he's worked on Locke, The Dead Drop, and has several more projects in production. Now, it's possible that Joseph Gordon-Levitt started acting at a younger age than anyone else in the film. He's got credits including Family Ties, Murder, She Wrote, Dark Shadows, the relaunched series, China Beach, Quantum Leap, L.A. Law, A River Runs Through It, The Powers That Be, which deserved to be a much longer run than it was, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, Roseanne, That 70s Show, 10 Things I Hate About You, The Outer Limits, number of other projects, but his best-known TV work is undoubtedly as one of the core cast members in Third Rock from the Sun. In terms of films, he's worked on Treasure Planet, Brick, 500 Days of Summer, G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra, Inception, and 5050, and subsequently he worked on Premium Rush, Looper, Lincoln, Don John, The Wind Rises, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, and has more projects in production. Anne Hathaway got her start in Get Real, and has also worked on The Princess Diaries films, The Other Side of Heaven, Cat Returns, Nicholas Nickleby, Ella Enchanted, Havoc, Brokeback Mountain, Hoodwinked, The Devil Wears Prada, Becoming Jane, Get Smart, Bride Wars, Valentine's Day, Alice in Wonderland, Love and Other Drugs, Family Guy, and The Simpsons, both before and after this film, and subsequent to this film worked on Les Mis, Don John, Rio 2, Don Peyote, Interstellar, and has more projects in production. Marion Cotillard previously appeared in Highlander, a lot of French work that I'm unfamiliar with, Big Fish, a Very Long Engagement, Fair Play, The Vion Rose, Public Enemies, Inception, Little White Lies, Midnight in Paris, Contagion, and Rust and Bone, and subsequently worked on Blood Ties, Anchorman 2, Two Days, One Night, and more French works with even more in production. Matthew Modine joins the cast as Foley, having previously appeared in Private School, Full Metal Jacket, Married to the Mob, Gross Anatomy, Memphis Bell, Shortcuts, Bye Bye Love, Cutthroat Island, Notting Hill, Any Given Sunday, the West Wing, Law & Order SVU, Transporter 2, OPA, Bedford Diaries, 
kettle of fish and weeds, and subsequently has appeared in a lot of smaller art projects and movies, which he was doing prior to this as well. So now on to the content of the movie itself. Now, in the course of relaunching this Batman franchise, Warner Brothers released a direct-to-home video film titled Batman Gotham Night. It came out on DVD and Blu-ray between the first two films, was meant to take place between the first two films, and was an anthology format, much like the Animatrix, telling different stories about Batman and his whole crime-fighting career. Now, it didn't fit very well between the movies, given that Batman Begins ends with Batman taking the Joker's, so to speak, calling card, and then The Dark Knight is all about facing off against the Joker. If you had this many adventures in between, either the Joker was taking some time off, or the Batman was ignoring him. Either one is a problem in terms of the story for that second film. So what's the wrong way to release something like that? Now, on the flip side, between the second and third films, there's a minimum of eight years that have elapsed. And that eight years, that gap begs for another film. So when he left Batman at the end of The Dark Knight, he was ready to take on the world. He was at the top of his game. He was going to take out the crime in Gotham while the police were hounding him, blaming him for the death of Harvey Dent. And he was going to be, you know, the ostracized vigilante, but he asked Gordon to put him in that position because he could take it. And that's even the way Gordon said, we have to chase him because he can take it. So he was ready to go out and ready to keep fighting and evade the police while still fighting the good fight. This movie opens with a very broken Batman and Bruce Wayne. Neither of them has been seen in the public for eight years. We don't know how much time elapses between the end of the Dark Knight and the start of that eight-year period, but we know there's been definitely some time that's elapsed. And we've got the Dent Act in place. So legislation has been passed in the name of Harvey Dent that has allowed them to clean up the streets and virtually eliminate crime. So don't go into details about the power of the Dent Act, but it sounds like it's some sort of far-reaching, almost martial law type act. There's only so many ways you can have a single piece of legislation that allows you to wipe out all crime in the city. And a lot of that is giving the previously very corrupt police department an immense amount of power. So I don't know how the logistics of that worked. And that is something that needs to be explained to connect the dots between the end of the last film and the start of this one. And they never really say why Batman retired, although it appears he was no longer needed based on where he was going in Dark Knight. Right? Bruce felt he could hang up the Batman persona when Gotham no longer needed him. With the Dent Act in place, it would appear Gotham no longer needed him. Now, Bruce Wayne is in hiding, but the way it's explained by Lucius Fox and by Alfred Pennyworth, he's not hiding because of the police hunt or anything like that, which is good because Batman should be able to take it. He's hiding because his clean fusion project could be weaponized and that made him feel sad. The project was mothballed. He lost a lot of money because he didn't like the potential of someone turning his fusion reactor into a weapon. And it's even pointed out, well, yeah, that's because you can turn anything into a weapon. That's all you see. So this movie, I enjoy it, but it would have been better as the fourth film in the franchise rather than the third. It would have been nice to have the story of the fall before we see him rise up and Batman rises. But of course, if that's where Batman is at the start of the film, to make it a Batman film, we need some reason for him to come out of retirement and start acting it and taking part again. Well, for a city that has no crime, there's still a fair amount of crime going on. Some of it is coming in, some of it is already there. The major driving force, as far as anyone can tell, is Bane. Bane was a, an individual who was too radical for the lead of Shadows, and now he's running his own crew with his own agenda. We later find out that this crew is the League of Shadows, and he's coming for Gotham to finish what was started. Coming along with him is Talia al Ghul, 
the daughter of Rachel Ghoul, pronounced Razel Ghoul in the films, who Bane's in love with and who blames Batman for the death of her father and wants to finish what he started. But what he started was cleansing the city and eliminating crime, which has been accomplished. So it turns her from someone who's kind of noble and following her father's goal of having a crime-free city into a thug looking for revenge. She'd been working under an alternate identity to make sure that Bruce Wayne's fusion project could be completed to turn it into a weapon since before the research paper was published that explained exactly how to turn it into a weapon. So again, the timelines don't quite line up there. We also have some crime going on within Gotham, notably Catwoman, who's an exceptional thief. They don't call her Catwoman on screen. She's Selina Kyle, and the newspapers refer to her as the cat. Now in here, they've taken the character much closer to her roots. This is not the mystical totem that we had with Halle Berry. This is not the woman returned from the dead that we had with Michelle Pfeiffer. This is a cat burglar, and one who was originally modeled to some degree on Hedy Lamarr. Most people who know Hedy Lamarr know her as an actress from Germany, or more specifically Austria, who did a lot of German-language films in the 1930s, who then made her way into North America and started working out of Hollywood in the 1940s. What a lot of people don't realize are the connections and the path that took her there. She was born into a very wealthy Austrian family, and they were wealthy enough and traditional enough that she ended up in an arranged marriage. Now, the man she was married to took on a role of an arms dealer and helped develop weapons for the Nazis. So it was not uncommon for Hitler and Goebbels and some other people to be in her home as they were doing their planning and developing their weapons for the Nazi war effort. Now, Hedy Lamarr didn't get a lot of formal education, even though she was an incredibly intelligent woman. She essentially taught herself math, science, and engineering by listening in on these conversations as the hostess of these meetings. And one day, she was seeing a player piano, and the mechanisms of the player piano inspired her to create something that was a rotating frequency transmission, so that noise and interference and other environmental effects wouldn't have as much impact on transmitted signals going back and forth. It was her husband who immediately realized the implications of using that to produce guided missiles that would be much more difficult for the Allies to stop. Now, Hedy Lamarr had been present at these meetings with Hitler and Goebbels. She didn't agree with their tactics. She did not support the Nazi party, but she wasn't so opposed to it that she was willing to stick her neck out to stop them in the position she was in until she realized that it was going to be her invention and her discovery that was going to promote their weapons effort and give them a major advantage. To Hedy Lamarr, that was simply unacceptable. So she drugged both her husband and her housekeeper, stole her housekeeper's clothes, jewelry, and identifications, jumped out a window, as Catwoman does in the first scene here, that's one of the homages, and managed to escape Nazi or Austria and Nazi Germany and get over to London. That's where she met Louis B. Mayer, the second M in MGM, who accurately predicted that he would have possibly the most attended funeral in Hollywood history because people would want to make sure that he was really dead. Now, Hedy Lamarr was a gorgeous woman who had made her reputation by doing some early semi-erotica films. Not necessarily pornographic, but definitely arousing. And when she met Louis B. Mayer, she sized him up pretty well and offered him some personal favors in addition to appearing in his films if he helped her get in touch with the Allied parties so that she could give her discovery to them and safely get to the United States. He took her up on that offer, and that technology that became guided missiles for the Allied powers that were difficult to stop 
has since grown into frequency hopping, which is a major piece of Wi-Fi transmissions and cellular transmissions today. So Hedy Lamar has probably had a huge influence on the current state of technology in a lot of things that we take for granted. And a lot of her story inspired Catwoman as she appeared in the comics, originally referred to as the Cat, back in Batman number one in 1940. And that's the interpretation that is used in this movie. So excellent cat burglar, willing to do what it takes to achieve her goals, which is part of what we see here when Catwoman is perfectly willing to kill. Batman's trying to lay the law down and Catwoman, you know, kind of goes along with it for a while, but isn't quite as devoted to it. It seems more like she's going along with what Batman wants simply because he's the first man to show her any level of respect. And while Batman's coming back and starting to put his himself at risk again, he is in rough shape. The doctor tells him that the cartilage in his knees are shot even though there appeared to be cartilage there, and I've spoken to a medical doctor I know, who's part of the Horizon Labs Facebook group, who assures me that the doctor completely misread those x-rays, and the cartilage in those x-rays is perfectly fine. Essentially, Alfred is happy to see his friend up and about, but not happy to see him becoming Batman again, even though he'd given him tremendous support before, and promised earlier that he would never give up on Bruce. Well, here he gives up and leaves, denying Bruce that support, which would work if the purpose of this is to see Batman rediscover himself and overcome the threat of Bane and do it on its own. But he doesn't do it on his own. He's still working with Commissioner Gordon. In a lot of ways, he recruits Catwoman. Even though she's still her own woman, she does things her own way, and we're never completely sure whether or not she's on board with him or whether she's just taking him along for a ride to get what she wants. And there's also police officer Blake, who gets promoted to detective, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who figured out that Bruce Wayne is Batman, because when Bruce Wayne visited him in an orphanage, he saw the anger behind Bruce Wayne's eyes and knew that he was hiding his true feelings. So therefore, it's the inevitable and logical conclusion that a man who's angry that he is an orphan would obviously have become this masked vigilante who's fighting to protect the innocent in an elaborate body armor and become something of a legend in this town. It's a logical leap I don't quite make. I personally think there'd be more there. But Blake is an interesting character. And he's an amalgam of several of the characters that we see in the comics. Namely, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, and Dick Grayson, the three Robins. And as we learn at the end of the film, Blake's legal name is Robin. So in the course of the movie, Bane manages to hold the town hostage. He's turned this fusion reactor into a nuclear weapon. He's ready to detonate if anyone from the outside interferes. And he essentially wants to take this cleansed city, this crime-free city, and stir it into destroying itself. And if it doesn't, well, then he'll just blow the whole thing up anyway. So again, his motivations are not terribly clear at this point. As a demonstration of his power, he blows up a football arena. Now, a lot of that was done with CGI. Some of those were physical effects. So blowing out all the greens, that was a physical effect. The initial script was going to take out a hockey arena because that was scheduled for demolition. Because of legal issues postponing that, that demolition didn't happen until after filming was completed. But one of the co-producers of the film, namely Thomas Tull, is also a part owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And as the football arena used by the Steelers was due to have its surface redone anyway, he arranged for them to essentially blow it up for use in the film. Now, there's a lot that happens in Pittsburgh. This film takes place over several months. It's actually about a five-month period compressed into this 164-minute film. And the final confrontation is in daylight for the first time ever. Now, Christopher Nolan has said that the market has shifted and people are looking for different types of entertainment, and more specifically, they want happy endings. And that's a lot of what happens here. There were rumors that they were going to kill Batman, 
And as part of the film, it did appear that they were going to do that. Unfortunately, I didn't buy it. The film was generally lighter, which could work for a dark ending. But early on, there's a scene where Alfred said that while Bruce was originally away, he would imagine that he ran into Bruce, saw him across the little French cafe with, you know, wife, maybe some children, clearly happy they wouldn't say anything to each other. They just make eye contact and leave, and Alfred would know Bruce is happy. When he tells that story, they actually did the filming at the little French cafe, so either found the location or built a set to match, which is enough production expense, and it stayed in at a slightly awkward moment in the script that if they weren't planning to come back to it, there would be no reason for it to be there. And that, to me, is what completely undermined any suspense I would have had about the ending. The fact that the bat, the new flying helicopter, had no autopilot would have worked had we not had that established, and we know that they're going to have to come back to it. We've got Talia al Ghul, who was running under a different identity, but when you've got two love interests in the film, one's Talia al Ghul and one is Catwoman, and Catwoman is much more significant in the comics, and the other woman, her name is not a comic character at this point, we don't know if she's Talia al Ghul, but her dialogue echoes some of the dialogue spoken by Ra's al Ghul in earlier films. It just seems a little too pat. You know that they're going to split up, was convinced that Batman and Catwoman were going to end up as the couple towards the end, and that they would show up in this French cafe, otherwise the earlier scene would have been cut from a movie that already had a significant number of scenes cut from it. And that's exactly what they did. Batman essentially fakes his own death, revealing to a few people who he was in the process, so Blake knows, Catwoman knows, Commissioner Gordon now knows who he is, Bruce Wayne's will points Detective Blake towards the Batcave, presumably to allow the legacy of the Batman to continue, even if Batman himself doesn't. In a nice touch there, the coat that Blake is wearing is a bit reminiscent of Nightwing's costume, Nightwing being the solo superhero identity taken on by the original Robin, Dick Grayson, when he steps out on his own. And, you know, of course, Batman and Catwoman do end up in that French cafe, and Alfred sees them there. So we get the happy ending, he wins the day, he gets the recognition that he would have had at the end of the second one, had they been honest. All of the lies that were used for the greater good in the second film have been publicly revealed to be lies, and people have managed to get through it, whether it's Alfred burning the letter, the true death of Harvey Dent, all of that has come out of the wash. So it is an enjoyable film. Some of the character motivations and the initial status quo don't quite line up, and it bugs me a little bit more each time I see it. They do hearken back quite a bit to the Nightfall story arc from the comics, in which Bane breaks Batman's back, That's a little bit different. In the comics, Bane managed to orchestrate a breakout from Arkham Asylum, took a look at Batman's response times as he was running this gauntlet of bringing these criminals back in, used that to triangulate the position of the Batcave, gained entry before Bruce Wayne got back, and fought and broke his back, causing another character to assume the role of Batman while Bruce Wayne was learning how to walk again. This film is a little bit similar, Batman gets captured, brought to an underground lair. This time it's not the Batcave, it's Bane's lair. Bane fights Bruce Wayne and dislocates a vertebrae. So it doesn't break his back, but does make it difficult for Bruce to walk again until he gets healed. And then Bruce is dumped where Bane was originally found, thinking that would destroy him, even though it didn't destroy Bane or Talia. There's just a little too many assumptions and questionable choices made by characters in the movie to really enjoy it. I enjoy a lot of it, but it's just, I find this is the one film in this trilogy that deteriorates instead of improves on repeat viewings. Now, as far as the box office is concerned, the budget for this film was an estimated $250 million. 
The opening weekend gross was $160,887,295. So a very strong opening weekend, recovering a little over, well, close to 65% of the budget. The final domestic gross was $448,139,099, which is about 1.8 times the budget. Now, a rule of thumb has been two to three times the budget to guarantee profitability. So it's not quite there, but it's close enough that strong DVD and home video sales would push it into that point if it was only released domestically. The worldwide gross, as of April 27, 2013, was $1,084,439,099, which is about 4.3 times the budget. So even with the additional costs incurred of shipping the film overseas, those are distribution costs more so than production costs. The only real production issues that you have are the translation that is more than enough to ensure profitability before the home video releases. So this was financially and for the most part artistically a successful chapter in the Batman franchise. So that's pretty much everything I have to say about Dark Knight Rises. Please join us again in January when we look at the first of the next series of films where we're just going through silver screen superheroes, rotating franchises and titles along the way. I've got a few ideas kicking around for what I'm going to do in January. I haven't pinned any of them down yet. So please tune in on the 14th of the month in January as we discuss the next film. Feedback, as always, can be sent to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. The show can be reviewed on both iTunes and Stitcher. And finally, thank you for listening.